Just a couple of announcements before we begin. Saturday night, May 30th, we have a ministry meeting. It's for anyone in ministry interested in being in ministry and those who have no interest in ministry whatsoever but would like to come and eat with us. That's Saturday night, May 30th at 6 p.m. Potluck dinner, always a wonderful time. June 22nd through 26th. So Monday through th uh, Friday, each, mon uh, each day, each weekday, we'll be meeting at, over at the Alice Hayward Taylor Community for a vacation Bible school for the kids over there. There's a sign-up sheet in the back. Always a wonderful time. If you weren't here last week, we handed out baby bottles. These are from A Woman's Concern, a crisis pregnancy center. There's a couple in the back. Uh, between now and Father's Day, we'll be filling these up with um, coins, big ones, and uh, collecting them. That's for the uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center, a woman's concern. We've been a supporter of, the, uh, of theirs for a long time, and uh, it's near and dear to our hearts, a woman's concern. If you park downstairs or at 375 Longwood. There's a free parking token in the back. Also at Calvary Chapel, we do not pass a plate. We do have an offering box in the back. And if you have a cell phone, please uh, turn it off now. Okay, so we are in Psalms, Psalm 6. Please turn to Psalm 6, going through the Old Testament. Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we are in the book of Psalms. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, there is so much that you have for us in your word, so much, Lord. And Father, how this word, the Psalms, just such a such a reflection and an accurate depiction of the wide range of our emotions, Lord, and our moods and our desires and the fears and insecurities we have. And just pray, God, in the name of Jesus, speak to us this evening. I also pray for the New Believers class that you would bless the teaching there as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 6 begins like this. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O oh Lord, for I am weak. O oh Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O oh Lord, how long? Return, O oh Lord, deliver me. O oh, save me for your mercy's sake. Now, some, some believe this is what's called a penit one of the penitential psalms, meaning one of the psalms where David has sinned, and he's crying out to the Lord. Uh, certainly, it, it is true so often when 
we're overtaken by the guilt of sin. Our bones, verse 2, are troubled. Our, our bones are troubled. Our, our heart is vexed. And there can literally be a physical reaction that we have when we're overtaken by guilt. But I think it's important myself that if the unless unless it is clear and it's not clear here we shouldn't necessarily assume that this is a situation where David is in great sin he may just be crying out to God because he's in a state of great confusion he's not hearing from God verse 3 says but you O Lord how long, how long are you going to hide your face from me? And that is, you know, sin or no sin, that is a state where in spiritual warfare, you and I find ourselves in. We don't, we don't seem to be hearing from the Lord. He seems to be silent. God, where are you? Now, one important thing about going through the Psalms, and they've been shared with you last week, such a huge part of my life. The Psalms have spent so much time, far more times in the Psalm than uh, any other book in the Bible. I've I've spent uh, just meditating on them and chewing them up and just studying them and, and stepping into the shoes, into the seat of the psalmist. But don't ever assume that a psalm is accurate in its theology, it's, that it's accurate in its portrayal of God, or it's even its doctrine, because sometimes it's just David who's on the verge of losing his mind, and he's just crying out, and his, his, um, his prayer is being recorded. And that's what's so beautiful about them. It's as if someone took a recording of David when he was alone in his his prayer closet, and just recorded what he said. And sometimes, like we saw in Job, he'll accuse God of things that are false. He portrays God in a way that is not accurate. But how many times have we been in a, a, you know, in a state of mind where we're crying out like him in verse 3, Oh, how long, O oh Lord, how long? How long till I stay in this trial? How long are you going to keep me in this, Lord? So as you're going through the Psalms, they're less something to be studied than something that you need to just sort of step into and take the reins And let them be the cry of your own heart. So verse 2 says, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am weak. Verse 4 says, Return, O Lord, deliver me, O save me, for your mercy's sake. Now, if there's one thing David did know how to do, and you should imitate, it's how he prays. 
And notice how he's not saying, Lord, have mercy on me because I'm all together. I got it all together. He's not saying, Lord, have mercy on me because I have such a good devotion time. He's not saying, Lord, have mercy on me because I've tithed or I serve you so well or I'm really zealous for the Lord and I've witnessed to three, five, ten people this week. No, he says, Lord, have mercy on me because I'm weak. I'm a nothing. I don't have it together. That is always the basis by which we come to the Lord. We never come to the Lord on the basis of whether we've had a good day or not. And that, if there's any area that Christians get wrong over and over and over again, it's this one. Well, I can go to home fellowship tonight because, you know, I've had a pretty good day. I haven't screamed at everyone, anyone. I haven't kicked the dog. I haven't, um, you know, gossiped or whatever. So I'm going to go to home fellowship. Next week, though, oh, man, I snapped at that guy on the highway. I looked really a long time at that really sexy billboard. And I kicked my dog. So therefore, I'm not going to go to home fellowship tonight. I'm not going to be with the body of Christ. I'm not going to pray. That is a works-based, unbiblical way of approaching God. We go to God on the basis of one thing. The blood of Christ has covered all our sins. We go on the basis of His mercy, not how well we perform. We can't be reminded of that too often. He says in verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave who will, gi- in the grave who will give you thanks. He's, he's come to the point where he just feel, wants to die. He did, you know, he's, he's in such a grievous trial. He's like, I'd just rather be dead. For in death there is no remembrance of you in the grave who will give you thanks. Lord, if I die, I'm not going to be able to give you thanks there. Now, again, this is why we don't read Psalms for doctrine, because he's got it wrong there. But he's going to give plenty of thanks after he dies to the Lord. But uh, verse 6, I am weary with my groaning. All night I have made my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears my eyes waste away because of my grief it grows old because of all my enemies and then in verse 8 it says depart from me all you workers of iniquity for the lord has heard my voice the voice of my weeping so what's happening satan or could have been real people basically telling david God's not going to hear you. You know, you're so imperfect. You have so many weaknesses. You don't deserve God. He's not going to hear you. And there's just the importance of faith in the Word of God and, and His character where He's able to, to say in spite of any sin, any stumbling, any mental confusion, any spiritual warfare that he's in, he's able to say in verse 8, the Lord has heard 
my voice of weeping. The Lord has heard my supplications. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. And so you're going to see this over and over again, this wonderful progression where at the beginning of the psalm there's confusion, there's vexation, there's fear. And by the end of the psalm, it's all worked out. And there's such an important principle there. That is what happens when you talk with God. That's why you don't avoid talking with God because, oh, I just don't feel like it. No, it's when you don't feel like it that you should be talking to God because he'll bring you to the place where things are sorted out. And even as you're crying out, and we'll see this more this evening, the, the, the answers will come to you. Uh, and, and, and he will just answer you right in the midst of, uh, of a dialogue, however painful it may be. Psalm 7. O oh Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. So oftentimes Satan, and it's no coincidence, by the way, that David likens his enemies to a lion. Remember, 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And as you're reading the Psalms, many of them are about real-life physical enemies that David have has, it is perfectly appropriate for you to substitute Satan himself because he is your enemy. <laughs> and he does hate you, and he wants to tear you into pieces, like it says verse 2. He wants to kill you. Now, the Bible says greater is the power uh, in us than the power that Satan comes against us. We have really nothing to fear Although we do need to be watchful and in prayer. So often, the enemy will get us to the place where we feel we're like we're a blob of red meat in the middle of a desert by ourselves with vultures circling over us with, like it says in verse 2, none to deliver. What do you do in times like that? You cry out to God and you say, rescue me, Lord. There's none to deliver me. I feel like I'm going to be ripped into pieces. Turn to this psalm and just step right into the shoes of, uh, uh, of the writer and cry out. That's why these psalms are here. These psalms are here for you. Verse 3, O Lord my God, if I had done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, then let my enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let him trample me by my life to the earth, uh, trample my life to the earth, and lay my honor in the dust. Now, what's going on here? Uh, this is uh, basically. Uh, 
a reference to verses 3 through 5 when David, if you remember when David, uh, remember he was uh, a, a hero in Israel. He defeated uh, Goliath and Saul became so enamored with him, he invited him to his own table, gave his wife to David, made him a commander of uh, Saul's army. Uh, but then Saul became jealous of him, tried to kill him. David fleed into the wilderness, lived there for 10 years, and was pursued by Saul's army all over the place. And, and it was in, and he, this whole time, many of the Psalms were written during that time. David was so confused. Why is this happening? All I did was serve the Lord. I, and, and here I am, living in the open air. And I can't even spend more than two nights in a place without being told that I've been ratted out and I need to go to the next cave to hide out in. Twice during that time period, David found out where Saul was and went right up to his presence while he was asleep and had the ability to kill him. But he didn't do it. And his, his, his friends and his soldiers around him are like, wait a second, this guy's trying to kill you. Why don't you just knock him off? And he says, I can't kill, I can't raise up my hand against God's anointed. It's such a lesson to us when our bosses or whoever's in authority over us is, 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 is evil. We need to be very careful. That authority was put over us by God. One time, David, in one of those situations, he... He cut off a piece of Saul's robe, went to the top of a mountain, called out to Saul and woke him up and said, hey, look, I have a piece of your robe. I could have killed you. So that's what it's referring to in verses 3 through 5. Um, it says in verse 4, if I have repaid evil to him who is at peace with me, or here it is, have plundered my enemy without cause... Let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the earth. So he's saying, look, I, I've basically loved my enemy. And what he's doing now, he's just, he's just releasing this situation over to God where you know, he's being pursued. And he's saying, Lord, you need to take care of this. Verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me, for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the people shall surround you. For their, sake, for their sakes, therefore, return on high. Verse 9, O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and mind. My dis. Dif- he says, my defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. So, um, Satan is an incredible accuser and is pursuing him, is lying to him, you know, it actually both in Psalm 6 and in Psalm 7. And, uh, you know, David finds himself sort of in a, a bubble of, of, 
you know, persecution in his own mind where um, the, 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 the enemy is just convincing him that he's going to be, that there's none to deliver him and that he's going to be torn into pieces. And, you know, it's an interesting thing about spiritual warfare, about Satan, about, you know, the Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of the air, that it's amazing the things that, that Satan knows. He knows how to press our buttons. He knows what our weaknesses are. I remember when the church was... Um, uh, one or two years old, something like that. We were a, a smaller group of people, and we had this guy come along, and um, he he basically uh, said that he had heard from God um, that he was supposed to be. This is really weird. Um, but this is the type of thing that happens when you when you do a church plant. That he was supposed to sort of um, become my right hand man. And he was supposed to be sort of the voice of the church and uh, actually a prophet for the church. And I was supposed to be his mouthpiece. And I'm like, oh, man, Lord, what, what is this? This is not what I signed up for, you know, type of deal. And uh, never mind the fact he was living with his girlfriend in a tent uh, in, in the woods in Boston and, and uh, a number of other really bizarre things about this guy which undermined his credibility uh, but anyway he began not only with me and a number of others in the church to to speak things there was almost creepy how much he knew exactly what to say now that would like all of a sudden make you fearful and filled with condemnation and things like this and it was interesting um, I was born here, moved away when I was nine, came up 13, 14 years ago. And the last um, 12 years, Scott and I had been uh, going to lunch uh, every single week with each other, and we pray. Uh, by the way, that's a sermon in and of itself. Uh, you know that verse, um, to he who wants friends, be friendly? And every once in a while, someone comes up to me, and it, this ha every single pastor has the same complaint. Someone comes up to them, no, no one's being friendly to me in this church. Every time I hear that, I go, oh, please, come on. Well, I should tell my story about being friendly to Scott because the first two years, we went out to lunch once a week, and every single week, it was me that called him. <laughs> Never once did he call me for two years. Now, after two Three years, two, after two years, he started coming out of his cave. And, and it, next week, he'll give his version of the story. But anyway, um, um, so uh, anyway, to, to you who wants friends, you have to be friendly. Come on, you have to go out and pursue the, the friendship. And, and I did that with uh, Pastor Scott. But in any event, all that to say that, you know, meeting with him and becoming so close to him, he, he you know, Scott knew within, certainly within a couple of years of, what my fears are, my insecurities are, and, and this type of thing. And so anyway, back to this guy, this prophet who wanted to take over this church. Um, he wrote this long, long letter, and 
we got this letter, and I just had such a lack of peace about it, I didn't even want to read it. So I gave it to Scott, and Scott read it. And, and then he did it again, and uh, wrote these five-page letters. And Scott, his one reaction was he was just amazed how this guy, who did not even know me, knew exactly what to say, because he never told me what was in these letters, but knew exactly what to say, all, what all my, he, it's almost like he knew what my fears, my insecurities, he knew exactly what, you know, what, what Satan needed to do to sort of get me unraveled. Satan knows how to do battle. He's been doing battle with men for thousands of years. And, um, but we need to cling to the promises of God. We need to cling to the promises of God. And as David says again at the uh, end of, of Psalm 6, the, the verse 9, the Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive me, uh, my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. And then same thing in ver- uh, Psalm 7, uh, verse 11, clinging to the promises of God, no matter what is lie is being screamed in your ear, whether it be a literal physical person or, uh, or, or a demon, and, and Satan himself, clinging to the character and to the, um, to the promises of God. Verse 11, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. He does not turn back. He will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. Uh, verse 14, behold, the wicked bring forth iniquity. Um, uh, verse 15, he made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. Uh, his trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down uh, on his own uh, crown. The Bible says uh, where the wicked, uh, where sin thrives, there the wicked are, but the righteous will see their downfall. And so the righteous knows what the end of the wicked are. So when they're being attacked, in spite of all the lies, they know that the Lord is, the Lord reigns. And again, how does the psalm end? Verse 17, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Most High. And so... Um, Notice how when David is being slandered, he's being persecuted, they are, he's being accused of something, uh, he, he doesn't try to be his own defense lawyer. Melvin Belli, who's a famous attorney, says any man who hires himself as an attorney has an, a, a fool for an attorney. Uh, and, and that's a right thing, especially when it comes to the spiritual realm. 1 John 2, 2 says, if any man sins, he has an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so regardless of what, what we're condemned about. Maybe we do fall into sin. Maybe we do stumble. 
And maybe every single accusation that's coming against us is true. There's such a freedom when we understand we can just release all that, all the accusations to the Lord, even if we have to say, yep, they're all true, but I have an advocate before my Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's my defense lawyer. When Satan is condemning me, Jesus declares before the Father, the penalty for his sin is paid on the cross, and the Father says, case dismissed. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God has removed um, our sins from us. And so, um, such a freedom, such a freedom when we can uh, not try to be our own defense lawyer, but release that to the Lord. Okay. So, Psalm 8. Another psalm that there's a song to. There's a song to probably every psalm. So, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who have set your glory above the heavens and out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength. Because of your enemies, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. And, and by the way, here is another promise that we need to lay hold of when we are feeling condemned, when there's so much guilt that's overtaken us. The promise that God does silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent or majestic is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Now, I'm told that there are between 100 billion and 1 trillion galaxies uh, in the universe. I don't know, you know, you hear these numbers, and after a while, they don't make a whole lot of sense, but... When you consider our own galaxy, the one that we're in, it's 100 million light years long. And so light traveling at 186,000 miles per second, it takes something like 100,000 years uh, to get across the galaxy. And that's if you're traveling at the speed of light. There's a cluster of stars right in the middle of our galaxy named the Global Cluster and uh, you can actually look at it if you have a telescope. And the thing is, though, the light that you see emanating in the sky from this cluster of stars, this cluster of stars is so far away that the light that you're seeing af- actually left this cluster of stars 34,000 years ago. And you start thinking of this, like, wait, wait, that's making my brain hurt really bad. But, but anyway, um, what is beyond all these galaxies? There's many, many others, uh, uh, millions of other galaxies other than ours. What is beyond the, these galaxies? Well, Psalm 8 says, 
you're, you have set your, verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. So you shouldn't get this view of heaven that it's like in some far off star or something like that. It's set above, beyond uh, the, the heavens. And then he says in verse 2, Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. And so anyone remember uh, where uh, or, and who quoted that? Anyone? Jesus? When did he quote that? Coming into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. He cleanses the temple. He goes in on Palm Sunday. He drove out everyone who was uh, selling in the temple. They were ripping the people off by charging them excessive interest and the currency charges that they were uh, that they were um, charging. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And when the uh, chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, this is Matthew chapter 21, and that the children were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. It says, the chief priests were indignant and said to Jesus, do you hear what they are saying about you? And he said, yes. Have you never read? And he quotes Psalm 8. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Of course, that sent them into a terrible tizzy because he's equating himself with God there. Because Psalm 8, of course, what is Psalm 8 referring to when it says, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained uh, praise? It's talking about God, praise to God. So Jesus is telling them, I'm God. And so um, Psalms quoted over, over half the quotes from the Old Testament uh, that are quoted in the New Testament are out of the Psalms. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers. So all these galaxies, all these heavens, all these uh, galaxies, they're just finger work uh, for the Lord. The moons and the stars which you have ordained. It says they're just finger work for God. Now interestingly in Isaiah 53 talking about Jesus when he, God's salvation Jesus bringing our salvation, it says of he, he, with his right arm, with his mighty arm, he saved us. So you could say that the act of saving us, Jesus leaving the throne room of heaven and coming to earth and saving us and the suffering that he went through, we talked about that this morning in the Garden of Gethsemane, the cross, the taste of hell, remember Jesus uh, did go down into, uh, into hell and tasted uh, what it was like uh, to be there. That was the work of the arm of God. All these galaxies and stars, that's the finger work of God. Verse 4, what is man, again, when I consider verse 3, 
your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moons and the stars, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? God, how could you possibly care about me? And the son of man that you visit him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the pass of the seas. And so we read about this in our study in Hebrews. This is speaking really of the dignity of man when you have 1.5 million abortions per year one of the places in the word of God that you should reflect upon when you consider just the horror of that is Psalm 8 verse 5 says you have made him a little lower than angels and you have crowned him with glory and and honor. That's not something to be destroyed. It's something to to really to cherish. Life is sacred. But it's interesting, verse 6 says, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now remember in Hebrews in chapter 2, we talked about this exact same set of verses quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. Again, what is man that you're uh, mindful of him? You have uh, set him over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet. But then it says, it says, But now we do not yet see all the things put under him. Meaning that sin messed all of that up. Sin messed all of that up. I mean, there was a time when, um, you know, actually, you know, when man didn't have to, didn't go out and, I don't know, was devoured by hyenas or destroyed by a tornado. The Bible says that when sin entered into the world, it not only completely disrupted and ruined, uh, it not only completely uh, disrupted his own life, but it disrupted and brought ruin into the natural order. And so we see Jesus, he walked on water, he multiplied fish and loaves, Every word that he spoke came to pass without failing. Man's not like that. That doesn't happen with man. But man was created originally, believe it or not, in the image of God in the sense that in many respects, uh, he did have dominion over nature in a way that he does not have today. And so that's why we don't worship man. And the city of Boston that we live in is just obsessed with the worship of man. 
man can do anything. So the whole Tower of Babel mentality, you know, in Genesis 11 where they build a tower and they said, well, we have, we're so ingenious, we can uh, build this tower all the way to the heavens. And that's how uh, man is now, just with genetic engineering and biological engineering. He's, he's thinking that he's just going to be able to create a utopia here on earth, the worship of man. But no, man does not have dominion uh, over the natural order. And so from time to time you do see in churches the terrible theology coming into some churches where I even listened to one well-known preacher uh, one time say, uh, basically force, uh, he pretty much forced everyone listening uh, to him to repeat after him, I am God. It was really creepy. He was a really well-known guy. And so you're listening to him and he's saying, okay, now everyone repeat after me, I am God. And when they didn't say it loud enough, he started rebuking them. Come on. You know, the Bible says, it says, and I don't, I don't remember if he quoted Psalm 8, but it could just as well have been because many people have, um, many people have quoted this Psalm in an inappropriate way. Come on, you know, you've made, the Bible says that God made you to have dominion over the works of his hands and that you're, you're a son of God and that you're basically a little God now. Uh, and, um, they were, you know, he would rebuke them. Bad theology. We worship God. We don't worship man. First John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And listen carefully here. It says, And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. In other words, we're not like him yet. That's why we worship him. We don't worship man. We don't worship ourselves. And God will use us sometimes to work miracles. He will use us sometimes in, in, in wonderful ways to show the world his character. Jesus says, said to us, we, you are the light of the world. And we're the light of the world as, even as we grow in Christ and we reflect his light. But one thing is true, we're not gods. Mormons believe, actually, that you can become a god just like God. As crazy as that seems, it's not what the Bible teaches. We are created by the Creator, and He is worthy of our worship. Verse 9 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Psalm 9 says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Again, another song. <laughs> I will praise you, O Lord, with all of my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. Anyone hear that one? Ever? Anyone here? There, there's one. All right. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it sounds really different, but uh, anyway. <laughs> Mike Rozelle's wife. Anyone know Mike Rozelle, the potter? So she sings that song much better than, than I do. So 
I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Now, David, if you look at his life, man, did he stumble. You know, not only was there murder and adultery, but there was, you know, the Bible says that God didn't let let him build the temple because there was so much blood on his hands. And a lot of the blood on his hands, he would just go out on raids and things, which seemed to be so cruel sometimes. There was deceit. There was lying. There was trickery. Sometimes his faith faltered. One time he got into the hands of an enemy king and he didn't know what to do, so he acted like a madman and it said saliva started dripping down his beard because he wanted to fake like he was crazy and he was successful. The king says, look, I have enough madmen. Get rid of this guy. And so his, his life was saved. He had many faults, but the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart and he is someone that we do... It's such a wonderful time going through First uh, and Second Samuel, reading about his life, and what was the thing about David that was just so admirable, so worthy of our imitating? He loved God with his whole heart, and he always came back. His repentance was always real. There was always real brokenness after he sinned. Because he loved the Lord. He never allowed his heart to be hardened. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Perhaps the greatest danger in the Christian life as the years go by is your heart hardening. You start getting used to just the blessings that God has given you. You don't really want to move on. You want to just rest in the blessings. And when that happens, your heart hardens. God has a better way for us. It's praising Him with our whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. You know, we are not saved by works. The Bible says we're saved by faith, but we are saved for works. You know, when we're out on Saturday nights witnessing and we explain to people, you know, you, can, you can't be saved by being good because no one's good. And the Bible says that not only lying, cheating, and stealing is sin, but thinking about those things is sin. And if you add everything up, who could be good enough to get into heaven? And so frequently you will get an answer. Well, if that's the case, then what's the purpose of being good? <laughs> what's the purpose of doing something good, taking care of my mother or helping an old lady across the street or going and being a missionary or whatever? The answer is, is our lives should be a letter of thanksgiving to God, a response to the, to the goodness of God. And that's what we see right here. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your uh, name, O Most High. 
just going out and living a life that is a response to everything that God has done for you. That's the motive for living a good life, for living a righteous life. It's not to somehow earn our way into heaven or perform for God. We don't want to ever try to perform for God. Who can perform for God and meet His standard? No, it's just thanking God with our life, with our life. Verse 3 says, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You rebuked the nations. You destroyed the wicked. You blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. Verse 8 says, he will judge the world in righteousness. It's important. I'll repeat that. He will judge the world in righteousness. Verse 10 says, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Now underline that verse. For you, Lord have not forsaken those who seek you. So frequently, you also get the question, if Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man will ever get to the Father but by me, what about the aborigines what, uh, who have never heard about Jesus or someone living in a jungle somewhere? What about retarded people? What about people who have never been exposed to the gospel? They've really never heard about Jesus. Well, two answers to that question. One, in verse 8, God will judge the world in righteousness. Whatever he does, rest assured, he's righteous. We can rest assured. We can just rest in that. But also, end of verse 10, it says... The Lord does not forsake them who seek Him. And so we see in the Bible numerous examples of someone who's never heard about Jesus, but they're seeking Him. Whether it was something they saw in nature, whether it was their conscience telling them, um, they start seeking Jesus. The Lord's not going to forsake them. And so what you see so often, as you saw in the example of Cornelius in the book of Acts, is he, the guy is seeking God. What does God do? He doesn't forsake him. He sends someone to tell Cornelius about the name of Jesus. The Bible says there's only one name under heaven and earth that you may be saved. You have to hear that name. You have to lay hold of that name. And that's why Jesus says, go ye into all the world. You say, well, what about the good person who's never heard him? I tell you, I've traveled many, many different places in this world. And including places where Jesus in many, hasn't really been, the message hasn't really been distributed or declared very much at all. 
And I got to tell you, I've never seen someone who is that person, this good person who's really seeking the Lord. I've seen a lot of people who are seeking a life for themselves, who are selfish, who are wicked, just like just like I was before I was saved. But this imaginary good person living in a jungle somewhere and dying without the Lord does not exist. But the Bible does say as they seek God, because in Romans chapter 1 it does say that you don't even have to you don't have to have a cross or a Bible or anything around you to start seeking the living God. Even as they seek God, God will not forsake them. And that's what this verse says. So you will speak to missionaries who broke new ground, got into brand new territory. They'll come into a village and they have these great stories about people were literally waiting for them. Wow. We were seeking. This is exactly what we were crying out for. God is faithful. But at the end of the day, look, we don't have all the answers, except we do know the character of God, and it says, He shall judge the world in righteousness. Verse 8, in righteousness. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord. Who dwell in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. One of the reasons on Sunday nights every other month. When's our next Sunday night that we have testimony night, sharing night? Is that next Sunday? So one of the reasons we do that is to obey uh, the Bible. Which says we should be declaring the mighty deeds of the Lord. And it's just such an encouragement to me just to hear about what the Lord has done in your guys' life, in your gals' life. And when we do that, and the reason we love to do that is, and it's part of the reason is just obedience to the Word of God. Sing praises to the Lord. Declare His deeds among the people. So, you know, if you, if you have something that you'd like to share about what the Lord has done in your life a testimony. We want to hear it. We'll be here next Sunday waiting to hear you. Verse 12, when he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. The Bible says that in the book of James, God opposes the proud, but he exalts, he resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. He exalts the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death. So again, it's almost like someone just recorded David just crying out in his prayer closet. He goes from one extreme to the other. He's now back down in a low right now. That I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughters of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. And so again, he's talking about the very important aspect of our life, which is praising God, being grateful to the Lord, rejoicing in salvation. I wonder sometimes if we took if we took a stopwatch and timed 
just what we're saying during the day of how, you know, how much time do we spend on reciting what our blessings are compared to what our bummers are, what we would find out. Spurgeon said this, we write our blessings in the sand and our complaints in marble. It should not be so. It should not be so. Verse 14, I will rejoice in your salvation. In your salvation, if nothing else, by the way, um, we can rejoice. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. Verse 16 says, The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his hands. The Bible does say, Whatever a man sows, he will reap. And then it just says, meditation, selah. Selah means to pause. Pause and consider what you have just read. Such an important thing to do in the Psalms. Just don't run through them. And so let's just do that. Back, back again, verse 16. It says, the Lord is known by the judgment. He, the wicked are snared by the work. So they, they catch themselves in their own trap. So I heard about this story in New Hampshire about this house that was burglarized in the dead of winter. By the way, you know, it's true that the crime rate goes up in the summer and down in, in the winter. Like, no one wants to rob houses when it's 20 degrees out, uh, apparently. But anyway, so that did not happen. Uh, apparently, the, uh, in New Hampshire, this one time, this house was burglarized, and there was banks of snow all around the house. And um, they... Uh, the thieves were caught really, really easily um, and taken to jail. And the reason was is because they backed into an embankment of snow and their license plate went right in and imprinted in the bank. That night it was frozen. And so the cops just showed up in the light of day. There it is. So what does this say? It says that as we me- say la, we meditate on it. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Verse 19, arise, O Lord, do not let men prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. And you know, I don't know about you, I do get discouraged as I see evil prevailing around me. Just the, 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 the sort of the moral climate degenerating. Um, the redefinition of of marriage seeming to gain steam. And I need to put myself in the shoes of the psalmist. And and this is what you need to do too. This is what the psalms are for. Verse 19, arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Because that's what it's all about. It's about man thinking he's going to prevail here. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Oh, how that is true. How that is true. How this country needs to know that they are but men. They're but women. And that is it. That God alone is God. The Lord alone is is God. Verse 10, 
I mean, uh, Psalm 10, verse 1, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Again, sooner or later, you will be in this place where you're like, I can't believe this. I'm just not hearing from the Lord. And days will turn into weeks and you'll be freaking out. What is going on? Just reading this afternoon in a devotional that the Lord does this for a purpose. It's to get ourselves just ever more focused on Him and ever more under the realization of how much we need Him. He always brings us out of that place. Always so faithful to do that. But He does it. He does it for our good from time to time. Verse 2, the wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they were devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked is proud in his heart and in his countenance does not seek God. And it says in verse 4, God is in none of his thoughts. And, you know, this is what's one of the things that's happening in our society is that the society is literally trying to drain God out of everything, not only the schools, but even the public marketplace, so that God is in sort of no one's thoughts. Verse 5, again, the wicked, his ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Again, this is talking about the unregenerate unbeliever, someone who has rejected God. Verse 6 says, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. So they say, well, I have, I got life insurance, I got car insurance, I got property insurance, but what they really need is fire insurance, because the judgment is coming. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression, under his tongue is trouble and iniquity, he sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places, he murders the innocent. And what does that sound like? In the secret places... He murders the innocent. Sounds like an abortion clinic to me. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wake as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So the Lord has such a heart for the poor, for the needy, for the oppressed. Verse 11 says, He said in his heart, God is forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. And then the end of verse 13 says, He said in his heart, you will not, God will not require an account. So this is a common thing where someone is living in a particular lifestyle and there's a tendency to think, again, it says, in verse 11, this is the, the, the unregenerate unbeliever says they're in a particular lifestyle that is opposed to the word of God. And they're like, well, God is forgotten. He's hiding his face. He, 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 he won't see. And verse 13, he's not going to require me to, uh, uh, to give an account. And um, 
people so often mistake the patience of God for apathy. So they're thinking they're in this lifestyle and sometimes Christians backslide into sin and they're nothing, for a while they're doing really good and they're thinking, God may, must not care. Must be okay with this. Or they mistake the patience of God for impotence that God, you know, all these horrible things are happening in the country and the world and God's not doing anything about it. He must, what kind of God is he? He must not be a powerful God. Or again, at worst, even for approval, he must be okay with everything going on. He doesn't seem to be doing uh, anything about it. But it's the patience of God. And, you know, it's been said that the wheels of God's judgment, they move slowly, but they grind thoroughly. And when in his time, when the judgment time comes, he does so in in a mighty way. Uh, Peter in 2 Peter says this, He says, scoffers will come in the last day saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the father slept, all things continued as they were from the beginning of creation. Meaning, God's not paying attention to anything. You know, year after year, people are doing what they want to do and he's not intervening. But it says this, Verse 5, but this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So he's referring to a time when God did intervene and there was a flood. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, and this is so important, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So sometimes we get impatient with God. God, why are you allowing all this to happen? Lord Jesus, why don't you come today? Well, if he had come 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you may have perished. You may have perished not knowing the Lord. It says here that God's not willing that, you know, why is God waiting on judgment? Well, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, uh, so, so important that we understand that we not, uh, that rather that we don't misunderstand and think that, um, you misunderstand and mistake the patience of God for his apathy, that he doesn't care. Actually, it means that he does care, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. 
Then Psalm 10 ends in verse 17. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. So we do read in the Bible of a time where Jesus will come back. Jesus promised that he would be back and that there the oppression would end. And that's the day that we long uh, to happen. And so many times here in the Psalms, we, we read a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do uh, in the time to come. And, and those words should comfort us. That's one of the things that the Psalms so important. God is the God of all comfort. He comforts, comforts us in his word. Okay. Next week we'll be in Psalm 11. Psalm 11. Before I pray, I just want to, um, anyone who would like to uh, come back, and we're going to be back here praying in about uh, 10 minutes. We are going to be praying about a few things. Uh, even if you can't stay, if you could just remember these things and maybe pray for them in your, your time this week. We pray for different ministries we support tonight. We're going to pray for... Um, for uh, the, the ministry in Lima, Peru that we support, uh, Pastor Brian Vanercody. In particular, a couple of the folks in his church are leaving Lima to plant a church in Ica, Ica, Peru. And um, don't call it Ica, it's Ica. So, uh, but we're really excited about that and we're thinking maybe even this summer when the team goes to Peru to go to Ica, it's about six hours away, it's a very dry desert kind of place. But they need a church there. And so, uh, really exciting. We're going to be praying for that. Also, uh, one of the guys that we know down there, Amerigo. I thought it was Amerigo with a G. I, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, anyway, is it Amerigo or Amerigo? It's, it's, it's C. Amerigo. Okay, I stand corrected. Anyway, he's, um, he's uh, uh, going into the prisons down there and want to pray for him. Also, there's Saturday... Uh, evangelism team uh, is continuing to do work. Also, want to pray for pray for the street witnessing on Saturday nights that's going on, the orphanage in Haiti uh, that we um, administer along with Calvary Chapel in Port-au-Prince, and finally the Alice Hayward Taylor Housing Development. We're going to be praying for those things tonight. If you'd like to pray for us, but let's close in prayer uh, now. Father, I just uh, thank you <clears throat> so much just for the wide range of experience and that we see in these psalms. And I pray for every man and woman here, Lord, that you give them by your grace that they're able to just step into the, the, the place of the psalmist and that the cry of the psalmist's heart will be their cry even as they're going through a mountaintop experience or an experience in a valley, whatever it is, Lord. We just thank you that... Uh, your word is always there just to meet us, Lord, where we're at. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that, Lord Jesus, that you didn't consider it. Your word says you didn't consider uh, equality with God, something to hold on to, but you uh, made yourself nothing. You took on the appearance of, uh, of a man. You uh, suffered and died for us on the cross. You raised from the dead to give us new life. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, God bless you. You are dismissed.